Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, April 29th, the Indoor Parent Edition. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's nine, Oliver, who's six, and Teddy, who's four. And we are currently nomadic on our drive to Colorado Springs. I'm in Atlanta for the week visiting with my parents. Celebrating Nomadland's historic Oscar win. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who is eight, and we live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate. I'm the author of the book How to Be a Family, and I'm the dad of Harper, who's 13, and Lyra, who turned 16 today, the day the podcast comes out. Happy birthday, Lyra. We live in Arlington, Virginia. Happy birthday, Happy Lyra. Happy birthday, Lyra, 16. She'll read your birthday wishes <laughs> in the transcript. She'll see Lyra pop up 10 times. Exactly. Lyra, Lyra, Lyra. We want her to know that we wish her a happy birthday. Yes. Well, on today's show, we have a question from a mother who hates nature with a passion. Does she have to suck it up and do outdoor activities with her kids? Then Jamila will be talking to journalist and author of The Eating Instinct, Virginia Soul Smith, about raising kids to have healthy relationships to food and body image when you, as their parent, are struggling with those same issues. On Slate Plus, if you're in a couple, who's the one who makes sure to sign up for camp? We'll be discussing a recent New York Times piece on the gender gap in cognitive labor. But first, let's start this week with triumphs and fails. Jamila, what do you have for us? I have a triumph. I took my vaccinated ass to Oakland for four days, and I felt like a person. And I'm so glad that I did that. I was anxious and nervous and felt weird about traveling at all, but I realized that, I don't know, I'm an American, and I guess selfishness is just what we do. I don't know. Like, I mean, I practiced social distancing on this trip. Um, I spent time with one person, and I needed it. There's nothing selfish about it. And there's no, I mean, your vaccinated ass is totally okay to go to Oakland. Yeah, I agree. And I didn't do anything to put people who were not vaccinated in any high risk, I don't think. And I didn't have any COVID symptoms and I've been tested recently. And yes, I got out of Los Angeles and felt like a real person. I want to hear less obsessing about what you didn't do and more exciting (laughs) stories about what you did do. Mushrooms. (laughs) (laughs) Mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But I stayed in downtown Oakland, and I was definitely overwhelmed by how, how much of the city is still boarded up from mm-hmm. the uprisings last summer. And there's all of this beautiful street art that is still there, but there's just such a drastic distinction between how that stuff was cleaned up in L.A., particularly uh, in the more affluent areas versus Oakland, where it's like, whoa, you're still in this, this, you know, it was a reminder. It's like, oh, we are still very much in this. Like, don't think that, you know, at any moment now, these boards wouldn't be up for a reason. One, a lot of these businesses have not reopened um, and, and many of them had and were still, you know, boarded up. Um, 
But anyway, I we walked around Lake Merritt. I got to see, I've been there before, but I got to see the Barbecue Becky uh, location, I guess, up close for the first time since um, that big thing. And it has become apparently even more of a destination for families and people of all creeds and colors to come together and be loud and present in the park, which was a really beautiful thing to see. Oakland's just a great city. And I, I hadn't been there in a long time. It's my first time going since I'd moved to California because pandemic. So... Yes. I love you, Oakland. Great triumph. Take it as a triumph all the way. Dan, what do you have for us? Uh, I also have a triumph. Nothing as exciting as going to Oakland. But we did finally get our kids to watch Sense and Sensibility with us, which is (laughs) a perfect movie. We've been doing movie nights for a long time, and we recently started doing this thing where we would present five choices and everyone on the family would vote whatever one we would watch that and that like that was fun that helped give the kids like a little more option but every time i would include sense and sensibility and every time they would vote for something else but finally apparently i chose just the right unappealing four other options <laughs> because they both voted for sense and sensibility and we watched it and we had to pause a lot of times to answer questions from harper even more questions than usual because it is admittedly tricky for a 21st century kid to understand why on earth 19th century people do anything. And we also got in a big argument with Lyra halfway through about whether drawing on your iPad in the same room as a movie is the same as watching a movie with your parents. But nevertheless, I truly and honestly think they both really liked it a lot, which makes sense because it is a perfect movie. It is a great movie. Come on now, you all weren't looking for me to come. I'll surprise you at some point. I've never, I think it, since the sensibility came out, what, 1995, 96? Yeah, 94, I think. Okay, I was say I was just a hair too young and it was just a bit too white for me to have been like, oh, well, I must <laughs> see this. this Listen, I saw Wait and Exhale, but um, I did not see Sense and Sensibility. But now I'm old enough to be able to understand it. I will take your recommendation. In many ways, one might think of Sense and Sensibility as a white waiting to exhale. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I am claiming like an epic fail. Oh, that must be that you don't have the cat. I don't have the cat. The cat may have fixed this whole situation, honestly. So um, Henry, who is my child with pandas, which is his brain is swelling as a result of some autoimmune issues. Um, we've just been having some some trouble. We're sort of on a down, I would say on a downward slope with him. And then on top of that, we have like the anxiety of the move and everything. And he has to get all this blood work done. And it it felt like like when we were in Navarre, we kind of had a system and the lab knew us and all of this. Well, we're in Atlanta and this lab work still has to be done. And so I made an appointment at a wonderful like blood draw place, called them ahead of time, kind of explained our whole situation. They're at a hospital. They deal with children all the time. I thought this was going to be great. He was in a great mood. Like we got in the car, we got there. And then there's just like, there's more security. There's more people. There's like cars all over. It's just not a great situation for him. We get up to the blood work place and they like take us back right away. But then the blood work is really complicated. So it takes a long time for them to like log all the stuff in. And he just completely loses his mind, climbs underneath the blood draw chair and is like screaming things. So part of the thing that happens is that he gets into this like fight or flight and he is like honestly convinced that either like maybe someone is trying to hurt him like medically they're they're trying to do like he kept saying um I don't want to be an experiment like he he's like you know yelling all these things and I was struck by this moment of like 
I'm trying to explain to the nurses, you know, like, okay, he has pandas. This is kind of what's going on. These two women were the nicest, just so nice. They actually brought in another woman because he was underneath the chair. But I'm like, how much explanation, like, do I owe them? I can't do anything about this at this point. I have to just kind of let it run its course and keep him safe. But also, like, I'm embarrassed, right? Like, I'm embarrassed that my child is acting this way, even though he has no control over it. And this went on actually for a while. And the phlebotomist just kept prepping everything. And I said to her, like, I don't know that this is going to happen. And she was like, that's totally fine. I'm going to get it ready and let's just see what happens. And I was like, okay. Once they had everything, I kind of squatted down. I've been like talking to him, but he doesn't want anything. He's like so scared. And I just said, listen, if we don't do this now, we're going to have to come back and do it another time. I'm, I'm so sorry. That's just like how this is. This really sucks. It sucks that you have to do this. And he was like, okay, are they ready? And I was like, yeah. And he just climbed into the chair. He's like crying, turns on his iPad and lets them take the blood. And this woman was so quick and so just like, like the minute he sat down, she tied his arm, put it in and we just did it. And then the other woman pulled up a chair so that when he was done, he could sit outside the room because there was like, I had to check the labels, do all this stuff. And it was just like done. And then I'm like apologizing to them. And, you know, now Henry is like, fine. He comes out of these things just as quickly. Once the fight or flight has kind of died down, he's like, bye, have a great time. And, you know, thank you so much. The women are like, oh, it's been such a joy, you know, to have you here. And I just thought how much compassion these women had for me in this moment. And I said to them, you guys were so calm and that kept me calm. And they were like, well, you were so calm. But just this like pressure that sometimes I feel to like have Henry act like a nine-year-old, even though he is not all, like he's just not capable of that. And so then I, of course, spent the rest of the day feeling like terrible about this experience that in the scheme of things, like these nurses probably don't care. They they got done what needed to get done. But I don't think I like ruined their day or anything. So why do I feel so bad about this? You see what I mean? I'm just in like a head, a mom headspace mess. I, I wish that I knew the thing to say to make you not feel that way. Um, but I will say I empathize with you and not entirely from the perspective of a parent, but from somebody who deals with some health issues that at times impact my own impulse control mm -hmm. and behavior and just the guilt that I feel in relationship to something that I cannot control, right? Yeah. Um, so it it I, I just hope that you find freedom from that feeling soon. But I do, I know that you know, and you know, you know it's not you, you know it's not a fail. I appreciate like your words on that so much, but it does just feel like the the pressure to be perfect in that moment. That's a real mom loop. That's a real mom loop. I, I saw this the other something on Twitter. Something I saw on Twitter the other day from a very young person too. Shout out to young people; they are of value. But it was about how certain uh, health. I believe they were talking specifically about neurotypical, you know, health mm -hmm. issues um, that impact your behavior can make one unlikable. Right. And that we don't talk about that because we've created like essentially what we think of as likable is this standard of behavior and action that is not realistic for all people. Right. It eliminates somebody who has pandas. Right. Or yeah. at least in that situation, it eliminates somebody who has Tourette's. It says that if you cannot fit into this thing that your body and your brain are just simply not going to allow you to fit into um, that you've done something wrong. So there's nothing bad or wrong with any of your son's behavior that day. And I think that's what we don't always tell ourselves, right? We might try to say, it's okay that he did that. But it's like, no, it was not a bad thing that he did. It was a natural reaction to what his what he is going through. And 
it is to be expected, right? And so that it yeah. is beyond not needing to apologize. So I'm re- releasing that it's not that you all were not perfect. You were perfect. He perfectly showed up as a child who happens to have penis. I love that kid. And I'm sorry that he went through that. And I'm also very proud of him for getting through it the way that he did. This is a great reminder to me, and I hope to listeners as well, that not only do you not have to feel guilty about this situation, it's a reminder that in general, parents don't need to feel guilty about basically almost any public situation with little kids, any tantrum on an airplane, yeah. any freak out, you know, in the lobby of a restaurant. What it doesn't that shit doesn't matter. And the vast majority of people around you may not have the saintly patience of those nurses, but feel basically the same way as those nurses that they understand that it is not something that is controllable. Yeah. Obviously not to the level of Henry and his pandas in most cases, but every kid is subject to being a kid, which is its own set of preexisting conditions, <sighs> which creates behavior. And we all remember it. We all understand it. And uh, it's hard not to feel guilty, I have trouble with it too, even even though I'm not a mom. Um, but but you don't have to. Well, I appreciate it. I um, it's a really good point that like that's normal behavior for him, and that's perfectly fine. Like it's it's like you said, it's normal. That it's not even fine. It's just normal. Well, you guys both made me feel pretty good about it. So maybe I should just count it as a as a triumph. That because I always like to try to in look classic positively. dad tradition. Yeah. Yes. I would count it as a yeah. triumph if I were you. <laughs> exactly. So then I should be able to just say we survived it. Right. Uh, all right. Well, before we get on to our listener question of the week, we have a listener recommendation we'd like to share. A few weeks ago, we shared some advice with a mother who'd lost her first daughter to stillbirth. She was looking for a way to remember her daughter and to let her newborn know in the future that she had a big sister. We'll link to the episode in the show notes if you want to hear the full segment. Anyway, one of our listeners, Erica, uh, lost her own baby in December, and she was kind enough to pass along some book recommendations that were helpful for her that she thinks could be of use to other families that are going through a similar situation. She suggested Perfectly Imperfect Family by Amy Lands, Someone Came Before You by Pat Schwiebert, The Invisible String by Patrice Karst, Sun Kisses, Moon Hugs by Susan Schaefer Bernardo, Love You Forever by Robert Munch and Wish by Matthew Cordell. We got quite a few really touching emails about that segment. And as always, we love hearing from you. So thank you so much for writing in, especially because this is a particularly difficult topic to speak about. Uh, And it means a lot to us that some of you trusted us enough to open up about it. So thank you. One more point of business, which is, of course, the business. First and foremost, subscribe to the show. You never have to spend time searching for our newest episode. It'll be right there in your feed. Plus, you'll be helping us out by supporting the show. In Slate Plus, is there a gender divide in your house when it comes to whose job it is to remember the little things that keeps everything running smoothly? Here's a little bit of what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. Well, what of these things do I do? What am I good at? Where do I fall down on the job? I forwarded the study to Alia and I was like, oh, this seems exactly right. And she wrote back, yes, I agree. We need to think about what Harper is doing for camp in the fourth week of the summer because we don't have anything that week. Here's a list of five camps we should consider. What do you think? <laughs> to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. 
Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Mom and Dad Are Fighting. It's only $1 for the first month, so to sign up, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus. If you want to be notified about all things Slate parenting, you need to sign up for Slate's parenting newsletter. Besides getting all of Slate's great parenting content in one place, including Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Ask a Teacher, Karen Feeding, and much more, it's just a fun story from Dan directly into your inbox each week. So sign up for that at slate.com slash parenting email. Finally, if you want to connect with other parents, join us in the parenting group on Facebook. It's super active and moderated. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, let's get on to our first listener question. It's being read as always by the incomparable Shasha Leonard. Dear mom and dad, we have a six-year-old son and a nine-year-old daughter who have always loved outdoor activities. My husband is from Arkansas and is exactly how you would think an outdoorsy Arkansan would be. He water skis, he wakeboards, he kills and eats defenseless animals. I mean, he hunts and fishes. I hate the outdoors with a passion and would prefer never to leave the house. We live on a lake, so the kids love to fish, catch minnows, swim in the pool, etc. I have never done any of those things, nor do I want to. Now, my son has expressed an interest in soccer. Like his sister, he currently does gymnastics, but he isn't really feeling it. The primary reason we chose to steer the kids towards gymnastics, literally as in I'm the one with the car and the driver's license and they'll go where I make them, is because it's a fully indoor sport. We live in Orlando, where it seems like you could get heat stroke outside most days of the year. So I've always chosen indoor sports. But do I shut down his newfound interest in soccer because mommy has no intention of attending the outdoor games? The complicating factor is that I'm the primary caretaker, since I stay at home and my husband works quite a lot. So if he's the only one facilitating outdoor excursions, they aren't as frequent as, say, games of exploding kittens. Is it okay for me to continue to be the indoor parent, playing board games with them and teaching them how to code, which I do professionally, sending them outside to play by themselves, and letting daddy do all the yucky outdoor stuff when he's home? Or do I just need to suck it up, buy a sun hat, and get outside with my kids? I cannot wait to hear what you guys have to say about this, because... <laughs> What I have to say is very simple. Yes, you have to suck it up, buy a sun hat, and go outside with your kids. You are fully outnumbered in this family. Everyone else in your family loves this shit. As you say in your letter, because your husband works as much as he does, 
you cannot fulfill those needs that your kids have. So you got to step up. And I feel like I can say that because there's no truly compelling reason, as I'm sure you know, letter writer, why you can't do it. As you say, it's just that you just, you don't like it. You would just, you would rather not do it. But, um, but this is one of those situations as we tell our kids all the time in a usually futile attempt to get them to understand where part of being a family sometimes just means giving in to the majority and doing the things that they want to do because it makes for family peace and happiness and is the gift that you give the people that you love. This will be the gift that you give to the people that you love. And I hope that Elizabeth will be able to step in with a whole bunch of great recommendations for things you can do that maybe you won't even hate. I don't have any. You'll probably hate it, but I still think you got to do it. But what do you guys think? Unfortunate cosign. I'll just briefly add, be intentional about creating some sort of regular family activity that you also enjoy because you are going to be spending a somewhat significant amount of time doing things that are on some level of sacrifice for you, uh, that they are not for your husband, right? Because you don't enjoy being outdoors and sounds like you're going to be a soccer mom soon. Don't make it a big deal. Like, hey, everyone sees me doing this thing that I hate. You know, I hate being outside. So everyone shout out to mom. Be grateful for mom. You know, and and most mothers don't have that sort of attitude. She should get some T-shirts made. (laughs) Where I say, thanks, mom. Like every time we go outside, thanks, mom. I'm only doing this for mom. I'm only doing this for mom. Um, Oh, no, sorry. No, mom's only doing doing this this for for me. me. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Mom's only doing this for me. So um, just just make sure that there's something that you all do on a regular basis as a family that you also love so that all of your family memories are not centered around something that you're doing that you would rather not be doing that you're only doing um, because of the family. And you will make beautiful memories there, too. But the things that make you you and the things that you like should be a part of the vibe as well. Enjoy the soccer season. Best of luck to you with that. Jamila, I really thought you were going to stand up for inside cats. <laughs> I, you know, she's so outnumbered. If it were a smaller family, I feel right. like there it'd be a little bit easier. Um, but also being the one with the driver's license uh, and being the one who hates outside is not really the most logistically sound way to avoid being outside. So um, I think she's stuck. You, you have to go outside. Like, I don't even understand this. Like, there are a million <laughs> scientific studies that say being outside is good, is good for you. It's good for your kids. You don't even have to do anything outside to get these benefits. Like, just Google scientific study and outside. And there's just like, like, they're like, you don't even have to exercise. And it's better for you. You just have to sit outside. Okay, first of all. Going to a soccer game is not, I mean, I know it's technically being outside, but you can like get a pod and a fan and a, they got all the products and you can sit at your child's game and essentially be inside outside. So I don't, I don't think soccer is like really the issue. I understand that it's like hot and it's not great, but like just, just, they make these little pods and you just get one, you get a little fan, you're going to be fine. Are you suggesting that she goes to her child's soccer game and sits inside an enclosed like, pod? Like, have you been to a soccer game? No one All can the speak moms to her? are in these little, like, pot. These, like, they're little individual <laughs> pop-ups. And they what? pop up. Yes. They, no way. Yes, they pop up around they're, your little they're chair. Drinking. And they have your fan. And they have their little cooler. I listen. Of course they do. I'm like the only person out leading. I'm leading all their other children in some kind of adventure <laughs> while they sit in the inside pod. So all you got to do is find an Elizabeth 
and she will take your children on some kind of adventure while you sit in your pod out outside. Outside in air quotes. Okay. Next. So soccer, not really outside because you can make it kind of inside. Drive your kids, sit in your pod. It's going to be fine. I think that you can find something that you like doing outside. And it is okay to have like the fishing and the hiking and the like, quote unquote, like dirtier aspects of being outside. Florida, I know you're in Orlando. I know Florida, listen, the summers, they're terrible. They're really hot. But like the rest of the year is pretty good. Like it's there, there aren't really bugs in the winter. You can get outside. You can like be doing stuff. You can go sit by some in Orlando. You're near some of the like most beautiful natural springs ever, which is basically like going to some, you don't have to get in the water. Just go sit by it and like absorb some of the goodness and let your kids frolic around. I mean, I just think if you like coding, there are all these like multi-part geocaches you can do. Um, and they don't really have you going into the woods. Like you can geo, like your local golf course has a geocache. And local strip club has a geocache. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. In Orlando. Yeah. God, yeah. there's dozens. Exactly. I just think there, that you don't have to be outside all the time. But the idea that you like are just never going to go outside. And I want to suggest just starting by like get a good hammock with like a net and put it in the backyard and you sit in the hammock by your lake and you're in, you know, and the kids frolic around because I, I really feel like you will feel good outside at some point. Like maybe it's not in the middle of summer, um, but there is some day in which the weather is perfect and the sun is just perfect and you will just feel good and you can do like your board games, get a giant Jenga, you know, thing and play outside. I just, for me, the kids are so much better behaved outside and I think that has driven me to do more outside like I I liked being outside but I really love it because the kids are so good and enjoying themselves and I don't I mean I've said this a ton of times that like half of parenting is doing a bunch of stuff you don't really want to do but you do it because it's the it's the right thing to do to have your kids playing soccer and making friends and being outside and you know your whole rest of the family likes going out there and that that does not mean though that there can't be like camping weekends where your husband takes the kids and does that and you have a nice quiet indoor weekend just coding through coding the whole through the whole weekend. whatever you want to do but i think that because you're home with them you need to get out you need to find things that you like you know as um the CDC now says we can, you know, be outside more with people vaccinated, unmasked, like go find some friends to be outside with, go to a park. And if you like to have some wine and let the kids run around, like whatever that is, find that. But I would definitely recommend for soccer, the pods. I think you're a good candidate for a nice chair pod and, and having a nice little soccer. There'll be other pod people there too. So you guys can just be pod people friends. A whole bunch of moms. That has got to be a Florida thing. I've <laughs> no, never they're seen every. That. I promise you they're everywhere. Go to it. A- <laughs> okay. I'm fascinated by this woman who hates the outdoors so, so much. much, but lives on a lake. Right. How did that happen, do we think? I mean, Florida lake, right? Like most of Florida's kind of a lake. Because her uh, husband wants to be on a lake. Does that mean something else in Florida? It just means a swamp. She, he likes being outside. Right. I enjoyed seeing <laughs> the militant side of Elizabeth come out. How can you not like being outside at all? In no situation? <laughs> Not even like alfresco dining. Come on. Anyway, we're wishing you good luck. We really want to hear how it goes. Please don't forget your sunscreen. Everyone else, if you have something for us to mull over or for me to get angry about, you know, email us at slate.com or do what this listener did and post it to the Slate Parenting Facebook group. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, let's move on into our next segment. As I've mentioned a few times on the show, I am working on my relationship with food and body image. And I can say um, one of the most difficult tasks that I faced as a parent is trying to teach my child to have a healthy relationship to things that I, uh, quite frankly, do not have a healthy relationship to. That would specifically be food and my body. This topic came up uh, recently, and I had a great chat with our producer, Rosie, and we decided that we should bring in an expert to help with this complicated conversation. So I'm excited to welcome Virginia Soul Smith to the pod. Virginia is a journalist who spends a lot of time covering the intersection of weight, health, and kids. And she's also the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. Welcome to the show, Virginia. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So one thing I I am going to be transparent about, you know, I've dealt with eating disorders growing up. I've battled, you know, an eating disorder. So I'm going to honestly say I have an eating disorder. At no point since it started did it end, right? Like this war that I've been in with my body, with food, has persisted since I was, you know, maybe eight, nine years old um, and really ramped up around middle school and um, has been a consistent issue throughout much of my adult life. And so now I'm raising an eight-year-old girl and I'm terrified. Yeah. You know, there was nothing that my parents, you know, that I can recall that they said or did that would have ever made me feel anything other than good about my body. Food was always available. There was not shame around quote unquote junk foods, but there was also intention around healthy eating. You know, it it seemed like I had the foundation for a healthy relationship to food and body. And yet I do not. Yeah. How much of this should I be disclosing to her? That's a great question. And I think the answer really lies in you know, how you would frame it to her. What we know from the research is it's really damaging for kids when they see a parent actively in eating disorder behaviors 
and presenting that as sort of normal, right? So if you were actively body shaming yourself or actively saying, I don't eat X, Y, and Z, or talking about other people's bodies, and certainly we know from the research when parents do talk about their kid's body or the child's eating, that can be very damaging. I'm guessing you're trying really hard not to do those things um, because obviously you're putting so much thought into this. So You know, in terms of do you talk to her about the fact that you're struggling, I think kids can see that parents struggle as long as it's framed very clearly in the message of all bodies are good, your worth is not your body, your body size is not your worth. You know, as long as there's that framing to the conversation, I think it's okay to say, you know, but I struggle with this because we live in a culture that gives us so many messages about our bodies and it can be really hard to navigate that sometimes. And what you're doing then is creating a safe space for if your daughter is struggling with something along these lines, she knows that you're going to get it and that you're going to empathize with her about it, but you're not going to say, you're right, your body is the problem. You know, you need to fix X, Y, and Z. You're going to say, yeah, this world we live in makes it really difficult to have a body sometimes and to feel safe around food sometimes. And, you know, we can work on this together and, and I will help you find the tools you need to work through this. When it comes to helping children develop a healthy relationship to food, what are some ways that we as parents can do that without mirroring diet culture, right? Like, how do I help you to understand that an overindulgence in certain foods is not good for you? I I don't want to create a hierarchy of good foods versus bad foods necessarily, or or that, Mm -hmm. you know, eating something that is unhealthy is a bad action, right? Like, it's okay that you want a Snickers bar. We can have a Snickers bar, but how, I guess, how do we create that boundary between I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want, and I should not feel shame, which is true. But also, if I eat whatever I want, whenever I want, there may also be consequences for me in terms of how I feel physically. I think what parents often do is we get really hung up on the specific food for, you know, the Snickers bar, or I was just talking with a friend this morning who was like, why is there chocolate milk on the cafeteria menu at school? They're having chocolate milk every day. It's too much. You know, we get really hung up on kind of trigger foods. And often what that is, is that's our own stuff around that food. You know, that's our sense of like, I can't control myself around that food. Mm. This is like outside noise or our own issue that we're putting on it. What we really want to do is stop thinking food by food with kids because that's not a healthy relationship with food. It's not good to walk around with these lists of good and bad foods and have these hierarchies. What we want to think is like, how do I help my child connect to their own hunger and fullness senses and their own intuition around eating? And we know that kids do this naturally. There are a few genetic things that disrupt natural hunger and fullness cues. But for the most part, most typically developing children have a really good innate sense of what they need to eat and when they need to eat it from the picky eating end of the spectrum, all the way to those sort of like kids who get hyper fixated on foods and seem like they don't have an off switch. Most of that is coming from the child's appetite, not matching up with the parent's expectations. And that creates tension. And then the child is going to dig in and eat way less because you're saying you're so picky, you're so picky, you don't eat anything. And now eating doesn't feel safe. Or the child's going to dig in and really want that food more because you're saying you're having too much. You like it too much. What's wrong? Why is your appetite so huge? And that feels scary and out of control to a kid. We have to start by trusting them to trust their bodies and telling them like what your body tells you is what matters the most in this conversation. Could you talk a little bit about 
the distribution and, and, and preparation of food and, and how it's made available to children in the house and, and how mealtime goes in terms of creating this healthy relationship to food where kids feel like they're satiated, they're getting enough, and they're not being cut off. Yeah. So a really common misconception parents have is that every meal opportunity needs to be like perfectly composed mm-hmm. nutrition-wise. And B, that we're failing if our kids don't then eat like every food group that we put out. And, you know, what the research shows is that the best thing parents can do is take a giant step back from which foods and how much their kids are eating at every meal. And so that doesn't mean it's a free-for-all all day long. You still have some structure. The concept I refer to often is called division of responsibility or responsive feeding. And people can Google those terms for lots more resources. But the basic concept is that you, the parent, are in charge of which foods are offered at a meal, but that doesn't mean that it's always only healthy foods. You offer a range of foods and always at least one thing on the table you know your child likes. And then you're also in charge of where food is offered and when. And this schedule is kind of the most important piece of it. Um, We know that kids listen to their bodies best when they have a little time between snacks and meals to get hungry again and come to the table hungry. So you try to get away from the kind of endless grazing patterns that lots of kids fall in, especially during pandemic life. My kids have been there, no shame. We all have. Absolutely. Um, But you try to work towards a sort of structured meal and snack schedule based on when your kid kind of naturally gets hungry and it makes sense to serve food. And then when it's time to sit down at the meal, they can choose from whatever's on the table and they can have as much of what you're offering as they want. They decide how much. And so that might mean, you know, for dinner, you've got chicken and pasta and a salad and they eat three helpings of pasta and ignore everything else. That's fine. That's you roll with it. You don't say anything. You don't make a fuss over it. You don't push the salad. You don't barter. You don't require them to eat a green vegetable to get dessert. You let them make that choice. And what you see over time is the structure lets kids really start to listen to their bodies. And you'll see, like, I have to notice one of my children will be on like, you know, two weeks, we'll see like, it's just the carbohydrates. It's just the carbohydrates. And then there'll be a day where she's like all about the broccoli and raspberries. And, you know, it's evens out. If you sort of step back and look at their intake over a week or two, you see that they start to hit the different food groups. They just don't hit them in that sort of my plate, perfect model that we're expecting. And that means that you can then really relax and enjoy meals and not fight over bites and not push foods. And it's like such a less stressful way to eat with your family. And that's when you start to get into the true benefits of those family meal times that we know are so protective against future eating disorders and all sorts of other issues, right? Because now you're able to connect as a family over food and enjoy it. Your kids see you modeling eating different foods. That's going to encourage them eventually to want to eat the Brussels sprouts or whatever other thing. And, you know, it's just a much more relaxed, pleasant, less fraught way to go about it. So, yeah, that's what I really encourage people to look into. What happens if you realize that the food groups are not all being covered, Um, particularly with, say, maybe an older child, you know, um, someone who's not okay, you're seven, you're eight, you might really only be able to do chicken nuggets right now. And that's fine. Say if you're talking about a, a 13 or 14 year old. Ideally, you would be doing this responsive feeding model when they're little. And then over time, you can start handing over more responsibility to them. So a 13-year-old is going to have more input into what foods are served than a six-year-old because they, they can do some of the meal prep themselves. Like you don't need to be feeding them every single snack and meal. So at that point, you might start to more actively talk about like what does a balanced meal look like and 
you know, do we need a vegetable to go with this? Or what do you, you know, do if we're okay, we don't really have a lot of protein in this meal, you know, what should we do and give them some choices? You know, what would they want for the protein? You know, you can start to kind of like talk about this idea of putting meals together, but you just don't want to be banning foods and you don't want to be commenting on how much they're eating. That is up to their body. Then only they, only they know. I mean, if you think about it, like if someone told you how hungry you were, you'd be like, what? I mean, how can you know? I don't know how hungry you are. I'm not your body. Um, so that's, you know, that's really important. And just one other thing I should add there is for someone who's in an active acute stage of a restrictive eating disorder, it is true. They cannot hear hunger and fullness cues at that point because the eating disorder is very loud and is dominating that. So if someone's in active recovery, there does need to be much more structure and meal plans. The division of responsibility feeding model doesn't work for somebody in that stage of recovery. It's something you work towards. So I will just put that out there that, you know, if you're dealing with a 13 year old with an eating disorder, you're going to need to give them a lot more structure and, and you're going to be picking the foods much more, but yeah, if it's a kid who's just, you know, really loves pasta or really loves pizza and, you know, is kind of leaning into those comfort foods, the worst thing you can do at that point is ban the comfort foods. Even for many of us that would consider ourselves, uh, for lack of a better word, progressive or, you know, very in tune to the need to uh, parent outside of societal norms and, you know, disrupting beauty standards and societal standards of all sorts. As an adult who rejects those norms, you still understand how I'm going to have to engage with them, right? And that no matter how I feel about the way I look, there's the way that the world might respond to it. How do we prepare kids for what they might meet outside in terms of um, diet culture and beauty standards in a way that supports their self-esteem and, you know, it, it encourages them to be better than what they've been presented with, but also braces them for what might come if they run afoul of what is considered to be acceptable? Yeah, this is a really big question and it's so important. And what I will say is we don't have as solid research on this as I would like. So some of what I'm going to say is like what I am sort of putting together based on what we do have. This isn't like someone's done a double-blind placebo-controlled study on this. So what we know is that kids start to internalize fat as bad as early as ages three to five. That research is pretty clear. So often we want to tell ourselves that our little kids don't know to worry about their bodies or they don't know about this, but like we're kind of kidding ourselves. The research shows that by the time they hit elementary school, kids have started to be exposed to beauty standards, you know, Barbie and the thin ideal and the thin white ideal and all of that. So that means we have to sort of actively get out in front of this. And then it's not too early to start talking about this. I think often parents think, well, I don't want to start talking to her about, you know, fat phobia or weight stigma because I don't want her to start to worry about her body. Like I might teach her to worry about her body if I tell her that the culture, and I'm saying her and I should be, oh, this is all gender, sorry. Um, uh, but, um, you know, that the culture, if I tell her that this is bad, then she'll think she's bad. But A, the culture is probably already getting that message across to your kids. And B, I think of this as much more like we know that white parents don't talk enough about racism and race with our kids. And then this is why white kids are not great on race. <laughs> you know, this is how you build racism is when you don't talk about it. And similarly, I think we need to, from a very young age, be saying to our kids, bodies come in all different shapes and sizes. It is hard. You know, you are going to be navigating your own internalized stuff about this. 
but your child needs to hear that all bodies are valuable. And that's so important. And at the same time, you can also start calling out fat phobia when you see it in culture, because kids media will give you plenty of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Peppa Pig is full of fat phobia about daddy pig's tummy. And it comes up all the time and it drives me nuts. So, you know, you can start saying like, Hey, I don't like how they're talking about daddy pig or, you know, you're reading Harry Potter and wow, I don't like the, you know, all the muggles are fat. And then she makes fun of them. And there's, I mean, there's like all these different examples and that can start educating your child in what weight stigma is and, you know, being able to see it. And from there, you know, whether you have a kid in a bigger body or a smaller body, it's about, you know, how do we advocate for this? How do we stand up for kids if they get bullied about their weight? Even if you're a thin kid who has a lot of privilege in this category, how can you be an ally to someone in a bigger body? So I think there's a lot of similarities. And again, like how we would talk about race, how we would talk about sexuality with kids and gender. Um, we need to be actively trying to raise kids to be not fat phobic. You know, it, it's interesting. You mentioned kids' television shows and how much material there is there. And I think back to the shows that I watched growing up, beyond just the kids' television shows, the family sitcoms, right? The oh, yeah. amount of fat phobia. I suspect that I'm one of a lot of parents whose girlhood was set to that backdrop and who has lived with eating disorders, who is now in this moment where body positivity is an aspiration, at least for, for so many, and that, that there are more affirmative and more diverse messages, I should say, or more diverse visuals in, in terms of who gets to be represented and who gets to be coded as beautiful. But I think about how some of the messaging that I've heard in, in writings and in and, and conversations around body positivity doesn't allow for the nuance of being a person who has internalized fat phobia to the point of disordered eating, as opposed to, well, if you don't want to be fat, then you are fat phobic and thus you are a part of this problem and, and not leaving space for particularly very young people to be products of simply their environment or, or what, you know, or perhaps to be dealing with something that is hereditary. What are your thoughts on navigating that kind of tricky terrain? Like, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I get the tension you're getting at here. It's really, you know, okay, how do we hate diet culture and not hate dieters? And in particular, right. not hate people who it's beyond dieting. It's a true eating disorder. And, yes. you know, the other place I see this playing out a lot is within the fat community. There are often folks who live in very large bodies who reach a point where they decide to pursue bariatric surgery to become mm -hmm. smaller. And they often experience a backlash of sort of like, you know, you're letting down the side or whatever. And I often think, you know, I don't know what it's like to live in a body that large. I don't know what it's like to live with that daily level of stigma and oppression around my body. So how could I possibly say to someone like you're making a bad choice? Like, I, I don't know, <laughs> you know, like I, they have to do what they have to do to survive. Sometimes you can't access healthcare. You can't access, you know, there's high, hiring discrimination. There's all these issues. And so the person who's making these choices or who's struggling with a disorder is not the enemy. It's the larger cultural messages that we have to push back against. Yeah, this is really challenging. It's definitely something I think the body positivity community could be doing a better job of um, because I do see that. And it's also difficult to explain to kids. Um, because you want to be able to sort of hold up the body positivity community as these great examples. It's so wonderful. We can show our kids these people in larger bodies doing all these great things and having these experiences. And as you said, it's a very different landscape than what we grew up with. I think what we also need is to sort of remember that eating disorders are complicated mental health conditions, that they are not a choice. 
the initial diet may have been a choice, you know, you're responding to pressure, you decide, yes, I'm going to go on a diet. But when it gets to the level of a disorder, it's your brain chemistry responding to this whole set of circumstances. It's not something that you're saying, like, I am going to just keep doing because, you know, often people with eating disorders really desperately want to stop the behaviors and that's the whole struggle. So we have to have space and empathy for that. And I think in terms of explaining it to kids, I think there needs to be that mental health awareness education piece of it. You know, and I also will say, I know so many folks at different levels of eating disorder recovery, or even still very much in active eating disorders, who are still phenomenal advocates for body positivity Mm -hmm. and fighting against weight stigma. And you can be both. There's no question. You can be both. Just like, you know, someone who struggles with a drug addiction can say like, yeah, heroin's not great. You know, like you can say like, this is something I don't want for my kid. I am struggling myself, but I am fighting for a better place so this is easier for you. And I think kids can understand that nuance. I think, especially as they get older and you can talk about these things in more detail. Again, I would probably draw the line at maybe talking tons of specifics about behaviors. You know, there's always the concern you're going to sort of hand kids a template of what to do. Um, but no, you can you can be both. You can be struggling and you can also want to make this change and be making the change. What would you suggest, Virginia, that someone does if they're starting to see the signs that their child has an unhealthy relationship, perhaps to food or to their body? I think you just want to check in in a curious and non-judgmental way, you know, I mean, about what you're seeing. I think, you know, you can say like, hey, I'm noticing, you know, with a younger kid, you might say like, hey, I'm noticing your lunchbox is coming home full every day. You know, are you not liking what's for lunch? Or is there a reason you're not feeling like you can eat lunch right now? You know, what's going on with lunch? And just sort of like keep it very broad because you also don't always know what you're seeing until you give them a chance to kind of talk to you about it. And I think it's really important too to make this the space that you kind of just hit on that tension of if you were you know, making your house a very body positive, you know, fat acceptance kind of space, your child may feel like guilty that they're struggling because they know that this is a value you hold. And so you want to make space for, you know, these feelings are real and these struggles are real. And parents do not show up for parenthood with this stuff figured out. We are all working through our own stuff. On a similar note, I think one of the biggest mistakes parents often make if a child comes to them and says something like, am I fat? Often parents rush in and say, you're not fat, you're beautiful. Mm. And what that does is it puts fat and beauty in opposition to each other, right? I mean, that reinforces that fat is bad. So if your child comes to you and they're thin and they say, I feel fat, you want to say, you know, well, what's really going on there? Why does fat feel bad to you? You know, and explore why that cycle is starting for them. If they're fat and they come to you and say, am I fat? You say, yeah, you're fat and you're fabulous. Your body is amazing. I don't want you to make yourself smaller. And you have to sort of keep reinforcing it from that perspective. But at the same time to the fat kid, you also say, but I know the world doesn't make it easy for you to be in this body. And I know that you're probably struggling with some stuff and you validate those feelings that they're having while continuing to accept their body. Absolutely. Uh, Virginia Soul Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This has been a really, really helpful conversation, and I'm sure that our listeners will find it helpful as well. So thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. And now on to the segment where we recommend things. So Dan, what are you recommending? It is not a perfect movie, but one of the movies that in a previous uh, vote beat out Sense and Sensibility was Office Space which our kids actually ended up really, really liking and which I thought really held up. It's Mike Judge's 1999 comedy about how shady it is to work in an office. Sometimes I've worried recently 
that the popularity of the American office on Netflix has fooled the children of today into thinking that offices are not really that bad. They're just full of like fun, loving goofballs. <laughs> so I feel like office space was a great reminder to our children that actually the world is full of lumbergs and there's nothing you can do about it. So if you can find a way to stay out, stay out. That's great. Good movie recommendation. Jamila, what do you have? I have a fancy candy bar this week. It is, I hope I'm not pronouncing this incorrectly, and this is a store that I know they have one in Midway Airport, and I've seen it in a few places, Vossages uh, Chocolate, Vossages Hot Chocolate, um, and I'm recommending specifically the Smoke and Stout Bar. So it's beer, dark chocolate, and salt. It is a delicious combination. I know that many of you all love stout. Quite a combination. Um, Would you like Chicago. to know the actual way to pronounce the company's name? Yes. And just how far away it is from what you said? I know it was three it's, years away. It's Vosges. Vosges. Because it's French. Oh, yeah. Vosges. Oh, like my last name? Why am I so bad at French? It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Okay, I'm going to work on this this year. Actually, I have a reminder on my phone every day at nine o'clock that says learn French. And one day. <laughs> that's, that's, that's you can mark fantastic. it off for today. You just learned how to pronounce the chocolate bar. Vosges. Check. Say it again. Vosges. 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 Both. I'm going to put a reminder on my phone every day at 9 o'clock that's just like... <laughs> Text Jamila, why aren't you learning be French? Be, be better, Dan. <laughs> I have one like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's earlier in the day, though. Uh, I'm definitely going to eat that chocolate bar. I cannot. That sounds cannot. so great. Okay. I am recommending having your children carry their own water and um, <laughs> snacks on your hikes. Why did my children not have this? I just got the kids for their birthdays, these kids' camelbacks. They're called mini mules, and they are the perfect size, and they can carry all their own water and snacks. And uh, we did a great little four-mile hike with them that they were just wonderful, me and the kids. And normally I'm, like, trying to carry all the stuff, and then one of the kids wants to be carried. And I was like, forget this. Everyone's carrying their own stuff. Someone carried Teddy's stuff. It was so great! They were great. They snacked when they wanted. They drank their own water. So if you are an outdoor person or not an outdoor person, but your kids are, you should get them a mini mule and tell them they're on their own. So that's the kids camelback. I have a question about this. Yeah. I totally get making them carry their own water. So they're not constantly bugging you for water. However, one thing I like about being the person with all the snacks when we hike is that I'm in charge of the snacks. And so they're because if they were in charge of the snacks, they would stop every 17 steps to eat another snack. And we'd be kind be constantly like, let's go. But if I have the snacks, they're like, can we have a snack? And I can just be like, nope. Oh, I just say I'm not stopping. So if they stop, they they I disappear off the trail. Yeah. Plus, there's three of them. So like they have to kind of negotiate. I mean, so you're saying they can take care of themselves in a once you're gone. When, yeah, I mean, they don't let they me go out of sight. They get too scared. <laughs> then they come running. Right. But one of the children, Oliver, did eat all of his snacks like in the first six minutes of the hike. Yeah. <laughs> lesson, but he's learned that lesson. He even self-reported to my parents that that was not a good, uh, you know, strategy. All right, so I'm I was convinced. Some extra snacks, but I, I hear what you're saying. Yes, it was. It was definitely a slower, but it was less weight for me to carry, and that's ultimately what I wanted. Yeah. All of Elizabeth's recommendations and triumphs are going to like point toward her ending up in one of those pods with like a 1.5 liter bottle of wine, just completely letting the kids do whatever they want. Right. While her kids have their own snacks and water. They have their own snacks and water. Next week, it's going to be like, teach your kids to drive. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So 
that you can get home from the park yeah. from your pod. Exactly. That's exactly where I'm headed. Well, that's it for our show. <laughs> so one last time, if you have a question for us, email us at slate.com or post it to the Slate Parenting Facebook group. Just search for Slate Parenting. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Jamila Lemieux and Dan Coyce, I'm Elizabeth Newcamp.